Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Let's Get Fiscal, a money podcast from 7 News. I'm Damien, the MSN messenger of the finance world and joined by our social butterfly, Gemma Acton. Hello, Gemma. Uh, hi there. Maybe I was a social butterfly before I uh, got a full-time job and a six-month-old baby and um, this new baby, the podcast. Yes, uh, we're keeping you busy. Now, side hustles, you might call this a side hustle, they've become a big thing in recent years. Cost of living is on the way up. People looking for new revenue streams. Yes, at the moment, you know, every dollar really counts. Research from ING last year showed that 48% of Australians either have or are planning to start a side hustle. And of those, 37%, so more than a third, were planning to sell stuff online. And the data doesn't actually look into exactly what people are selling online, but apart from all the obvious things that you're selling online, there's also selling your images. So we're going to talk today about the adult content platform OnlyFans, which has seen a rise in revenue from $375 million in 2020 to $2.5 billion this year. So clearly a lot more demand for it, but also imaginably a lot more content being created. One woman who has made OnlyFans now her full-time job is Lucy Banks, and she joins us now from Perth. Hi, Lucy. Hello. Thanks for having me. Lucy, it's great to have you with us. Now, we have something in common insofar as before I was a television presenter and before you were an OnlyFans creator, we were both bankers. Um, I mean, I've got my own ah. reasons for leaving banking, but <laughs> um, I'd love to hear a bit, little bit about your life before when you were a banker and, and what it was like. Sure. So I was really lucky to get a job in banking when I was 17. And it was just something I was going to do for a little bit, save up some money and go traveling. But it was really hard to leave because it was such a well-paying job. And I really enjoyed the competitiveness of it. I enjoyed the business dynamic. I worked in a as a business banker. So it was literally my job to meet new businesses every day, talk about lending, talk about their um, financial position and their goals and I loved it however as you know time goes on I I got married I had a family and doing 60 hour weeks in my early 20s was a lot easier when I I didn't have a family um I just thought I was like this is there's got to be something else I can't I can't keep doing this like I love the job but I'm actually miserable and was it taking a strain on your home life as well Oh, absolutely. I was up till midnight processing loans a lot of the time. And then you know, having young kids, I'd go to bed at midnight, but then I'd be up two or three times and then up at 5am. I was like, I can't keep doing this. This is so physically demanding um, with the hours. And there was, there was no way I could just do my job at work. Like I always had to bring things home because it was so busy. And then it starts um, to impact and- on your mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a stage where I ended up on antidepressants. I was diagnosed with both depression and anxiety. I went to my doctor because I was physically sick like I was vomiting every single night. And I was like, why am I so sick? Like, what, what is going on? I, I thought that I had you know, an illness or a disease. And she was like, it's stress. 
And I kind of thought, I was like, no, that's silly. Like, I can't be vomiting from stress. And she said, she's like, I bet you don't vomit on Friday and Saturday nights when you don't have work the next day. And I was like, yeah, I actually don't. Yeah, it's um, incredible how much your um, how much your mental health can can go into your to your physical health as well. Yeah, it's, uh, something you don't no realize until it happens to you. Yeah, I always remember that appointment. It was it was quite an eye opener for me. I was I think twenty eight, twenty nine at the time, and she's like, "If you keep going like this, you'll be dead by 40. She's like, "If not sooner, you're going to have a heart attack." And that was really um, quite a pivotal moment for me because I thought I've got these two little kids. I'm in a job that would replace me in two seconds if I left and I'm literally killing myself for it. This is silly. And then at that stage, I just, I actually just left my husband. So I was on my own with these two kids. And I was quite lucky to have a girlfriend um, from high school that was doing this OnlyFans thing. And I was kind of like, what is this? Like, I didn't understand it. And I messaged her one day and I was like, babe, what's, what's, only fans. I think I called it fans only, which is such a um, – we always make fun of people like in the industry now that do that because everyone says fans only. But anyway, <laughs> I was like, is this real? Is this actual money or is it just like, I don't know, internet credits that sit somewhere? I don't know why. I just didn't think it was real money. <laughs> <laughs> and she said um, – I think at that time she had made $5,000 the month before and I was like, that's it. I'm going to sign up. I knew that I knew my way around marketing. I knew my way around social media. And once I knew that there was real money to be made, I, I literally signed up that night. So, so let, let's go back to that. So at this point, you're, you're unemployed, you're divorced, you've got two little boys to look after. Uh, what are your yeah. priorities at this point? My children. I didn't want to go back to full-time work. I didn't want to put them in before or after school care. they just been through, you know, moving out of the family home and you know, being two young kids in the middle of a separation, I just really wanted to sort of nurture my kids and get them through what we were going through. But obviously I needed an income. I needed to be able to pay rent. So even though I wasn't really financially driven, but I was security driven, if that makes sense. Like I just wanted to make sure that I was okay and the boys were okay and I didn't have to go back to full-time work. Yeah, so stability for you in this case was being able to provide enough money for a comfortable life as well as being present in their lives. Absolutely, yeah. Now, there's lots of sort of content on that platform, or so, so I've heard. <laughs> so I've heard. Um, how, how did you and how do you decide what you post? What are you going to put up there? So the beauty of it is that you put up what you're comfortable with. Initially, when I started, I didn't put my face in anything and it was just me it, you know, showing a little bit of cleavage. It wasn't even nudes. And then within two weeks, I had my face out and I was doing full frontal nudity. But I made that decision when I was ready and I priced it according to what I was prepared to sell it for. So there are people that will only put up lingerie. There are people that will be faceless and then there's, the other end of it where people you know, do full explicit porn. There are creators that are doing like um, personal trainers or chefs or there is that other side of it. But I would say you know, 99.9% of it is adult content. Uh, let's talk about that. So we have everyday lives in, in physical lives and then we have our online lives. We all do, whether we on Instagram or Facebook or whatever the case is. Um, you have some conversations with people in the real world, some conversations with people online. When you meet people around you in your real day life, whether it's, I don't know, picking kids up from school, at the supermarket, out for a girls' night, having drinks, 
how's the reaction been who people who know what you're doing or either people who've possibly even interacted with you uh, in, in the OnlyFans capacity? It's funny when I meet people in yeah, like real life, um, I tell them what I do. Most people are really, really supportive, and they'll be like, "That's that's awesome. That's great. Like, look at you go, proud of you." And then I'll have people message me on like my personal Facebook and things, and be like, "You are disgusting. I can't believe you're doing this," um, and really be quite quite horrible to me. It just depends on. Um, yeah, face-to-face people tend to be more positive, but um, I've definitely received my my fair, sh- my fair share of backlash for it. Did you know, to be honest, Lucy, I think that's just the nature of online. I, if I bump into people in this, this street who watch 7 News, they'll say, oh, I love what you do. I love your stuff. I love your finance reports. Online, I get a lot of abuse as well. And all I'm doing is talking about what the share market's doing that day. So I think there's also yeah. that divide between between what people are confident to say to your face and what they're confident to say when they're anonymous, uh, being an armchair critic. Absolutely. As the saying goes, that you can be the juiciest peach, but there's still going to be someone out there that doesn't like peaches. So, and it's something that I'm really clear with people when they say that they're looking at starting OnlyFans is that if you can't handle the backlash, this is not the job for you. It just it just comes with with any any form of um, like business or being a um, anybody on social media, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, let's talk about the financial aspect of this. So um, you left a, a what sounds like a very stable, well-paid banking job. Uh, you've got to look after yourself and also raise two boys. There's a lot of money involved in that. Uh, h- how are you doing? How are you doing financially? Yeah, this is the most financially stable I've ever been in my whole life. I've got both my boys have um, quite demanding medical needs so that that's my priority that the fact that I can pay for private specialists and I don't have to wait on the public wait list is huge that's that's amazing for me they're both in private schools I've just bought a house and I'm looking at investment properties at the moment um, I drive the nicest car I've ever driven and I've got money in the bank so while I don't want to I'm not. I'm not bowling. I'm not like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not dripping in gold chains or anything. But I'm. I'm stable. And to be honest, even if I had an extra, you know, three million dollars in the bank, I wouldn't be happier than I am now because it's the stability that I, that I've wanted, and I've been managed to achieve that on my own as a single mum. And Lucy, tell me, like people around you in your life who who care about you, um, are any of them concerned about? It? Like, do you have conversations with them about it? I, just in terms of people uh, looking out for you, do you talk to your boys about about y- your career? So, in terms of people I've got around me, like I've got like a really great group of friends, and I'm very close to my siblings. And as far as they're concerned, they're like, "Are you happy? Yes. Are you safe? Yes. Then great." And they can see how happy I am and I think that sort of um, takes care of any concerns that they would have. They know that I'm smart. They know that I know what I'm doing. So they tend not to worry about me because they can see how happy I am. Um, in terms of the boys, they know that mum works on the computer and they know that mum works from home um, and that at their ages, that's all they need to know. It, it's not something that I'm ashamed of. It's not. It's. I'm actually quite looking forward to having these conversations with them as they get older, but they're not at an age where they need to know what 
pornography is or what the adult industry is. They shouldn't know about it at, at their age. So Yeah, no, it sounds no, like you're taking a very thoughtful approach to, to Yeah, them. I'm really big on um, raising boys that are open-minded as well. I'm not worried about backlash for them because they can also see how hard I've worked and they've they've been with me the whole time they can see that we're happy now and they can see that you know we have a house and we can paint their rooms and we can do all these cool things now whereas we couldn't do that before so I think when the time comes to have that conversation with them they'll be able to see that you know mum did make sacrifices and she did it for us so I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Now you're going beyond just creating content and you're going to start teaching others to do what you've done as well. Yes. It's something I get really passionate about because I, I was in that position where I had $60 in my bank account when I left and I had these two little boys and I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to pay school fees this week, let alone you know, do everything I've done since. And I have people reach out to me in similar positions or um, I've had women who are in domestic violence relationships and they're like, I need to save some money to get out. Can you help me? Can you teach me to do this? And I do want to be able to teach people to do it. I wish I had somebody to teach me when I first started you know, two and a half years ago. So that platform will be created to be a, a guide for not just you know single mums, but anybody who's wanting to navigate the adult industry, how to do it safely and how to do it with your mental health intact. Do you see it being a career going forward? Like, is this what you're going to do perhaps for the rest of your life? At this stage, I don't have any plans to stop. If one day it becomes not fun for me anymore, then I'll take a step back. But at the moment, I I love the work. I love the freedom. I've got really close relationships with my subscribers. I'm not planning on walking away from it anytime soon. I've got no reason to. Lucy Banks, thank you so much for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now to Alan McKee, who is a professor in digital and social media at UTS, and I'm told an expert on entertainment and healthy sexual development. Alan, welcome to the show. Hello, Jamie, and hello, Gemma. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, it's, it's quite a niche area that, that you're an expert in, but um, it's, it's great to, to have you with us to talk a bit more about it. Um, Alan, let's just start very high level. You know, for such a long time, adult content and pornography was considered taboo. Um, I guess that's slowly been broken down if we think about over the decades, if we think about people's fashion even, you know, people going from wearing you know, really long outfits to the we get to today where people are in music videos wearing you know bikinis and, and, and not much more. A, public attitudes changing, particularly here in Australia, to the concept of adult content and pornography? Thank you for that question, Gemma. That's a biggie. Um, in terms of the research area, it uh, yes, it is correct to say that my research is niche and that uh, looking specifically at the relationship between pornography consumption and healthy sexual development in those terms is very precise. But the, the bigger question is, what's the effects of pornography? on young people particularly, is not niche at all. That's something that 
almost everybody, I think, is concerned about. It's a big issue these days, particularly with the increasing availability of pornography on digital devices and the easy accessibility of it. There's a lot of parents I know particularly that I'm speaking to who are really worried about whether pornography is going to have negative effects on on young people as they grow up. And as I say, it's increasingly accessible. Now, there's kind of two answers to your question about whether pornography is becoming more mainstream. Uh, part of my job as an academic is that I need to know the history of it. And from a big picture historical perspective, we're kind of getting back to the way that things used to be. The um, The idea of sex being something that is hidden away and secret is actually a bit of a blip in history. If you go back to like famously Pompeii, um, pictures of human genitalia were all over the walls. That was public art. That was normal. That was that that, that was not invisible. Even going back to kind of the um, uh, most of uh, Western history, um, people were didn't have the same ideas of public and private as we do now. And so, particularly people uh, from the the lower classes, which is the ma- vast majority of the population in those days, uh, lived in, in a single room with a family of nine people. So the, the, the children would see their parents having sex. That was just how we grew up. The idea that sex is something that is put away in a separate space and not allowed in public really only emerges in the 19th century and really only emerges um, in, for the upper classes in the 19th century. So certainly there, there was a period in the 20th century where the idea was that sex should be something that was invisible and kept out of the public sphere. Um, uh, kind of the, the, the classic idea of the kind of upper class Victorian ladies who uh, wouldn't even show their ankles because that would drive men to distraction. But that was a blip in history. And I think we certainly are moving away from that now and back to um, what some people have called the pornification of society, because pornography then became for a while the only place where sex was represented. Yes. Now, obviously, the internet houses a lot of adult content and and porn. And if you do Google searches, it, it sort of seems everywhere. I feel like it's a bit like the the news area, news and media, where it was free for so long. With OnlyFans now coming in, what drives people to now pay for it? Uh, Damien, that's a really interesting question. And again, I'm so happy that you've you've gone to the bother of getting a professor on here because, again, my job as, as somebody who works in a university is to see the big picture and to understand that um, when we're talking about pornography being free for so long, we're talking about the past 20 years for the vast majority. So pornography was invented in the 19th century. And that goes back to what I was saying before. There's always been representation of sex, but the idea that it is something that is hidden away and only available to people who can um, access this particular genre starts with the 19th century. Um, they didn't call the pictures of female genitalia on the walls of Pompeii uh, pornography at the time because it was just public art. So, so could, I, could, I, could I perhaps bring in a simile to that? So is that like saying in the 1920s in the United States when they banned alcohol, speakeasy bars sprang up because you couldn't just get alcohol in the street? In 19th century when they banned um, genitalia being on display and, and sex became something that wasn't allowed to be shown in public, pornography sprang up in response to that. Gemma, that is a perfect, perfect simile. That's exactly right. It's the idea that you create this separate area of culture. And there's actually some fascinating research by historians showing that 
um, when pornography was was created as a category in the 19th century, it was to ensure that women in the working classes didn't get access to these kind of representations because educated men would still always have access to their sophisticated European prints of smut and filth because they were able to view it in the correct, educated, thoughtful way. It was just the working classes who were no longer allowed to access this kind of, of filth. And so it creates it as what happens in the 19th century and the in, late 19th century and the invitation, the invention of this category of pornography creates it as a, a product, as a, a commodity that people then have to buy. And so for the vast majority of the 20th century, uh, pornography was not free. You had to go and buy the Playboy magazine. You had to go and buy, buy the, the, the stag film. You had to go and buy the VHS tape. So the past 20 years, again, have been a blip that pornography is is bountiful and free at point of access for anybody who's interested. Now, that's terrible for the business model of pornography, and it means that the people who work in porn, particularly the actors and the actresses, are being ripped off and not getting paid for their work. But that's how things have been. Now, something like OnlyFans has turned that around again because people are willing to pay for that, and they're willing to pay for that, going back to what you were asking, Damien, because of authenticity because of relationships. That's what people look for in social media and all kinds of digital media is the sense of actually having a genuine relationship with somebody who is being real. It's not just somebody who is performing or playing a role. And so what OnlyFans does, the, the people who are successful in, in camming, in OnlyFans and Just For Fans, are the people who seem to be genuinely enjoying themselves. The actors and the actresses who engage with the, the people who are, who are paying for it. And um, there's even some research that shows that for a lot of people who go on to an OnlyFans site with a, a, with a sex performer, the majority of the time they don't actually spend asking for sexual uh, performance. They just want to chat. Wow. And there's something about that kind of what's, what some people call the girlfriend experience. Mm -hmm that actually is very attractive and people are willing to pay for that. That's right. It's an element of intimacy people people get from the site that they think they can they can turn into a friendship. That's very interesting. And although you talk about um, authenticity and, and real people, OnlyFans has also had the advantage of celebrities like Bella Thorne, Tyler Posey, Aaron Carter, um, Black China as well, as an example. Has that helped them? Has that helped that, um, you know, take it a bit, make it become mainstream, make more people consider it? That's a very interesting point. I would say it's the opposite way around. I would say it's the sex workers who have helped the celebrities. OnlyFans was built on the back of sex workers. That was what made it huge. And then the celebrities come along and try and piggyback on top of that. There's been actually, there was some controversy when, when Bella Thorne came on and started trying to um, get money for very slightly risky pictures that actually she was uh, damaging things for the sex workers who had built this whole platform. And that's not surprising. Again, when you look at it from a historical perspective, sex has driven the uptake of every new communications technology since the camera. It, even in the 19th century, when stills cameras were invented, the only reason that people initially would buy them uh, for uh, domestic rather than industrial purposes was creating smut. It was true for home film cameras. It was true for VCRs. And it's, it's kind of commonly accepted that all of the work that was done in the early days of the internet in developing the systems that allow people to pay for things with credit cards on the internet, all of that computing and that, those systems were done in order to, uh, uh, to support pornography sites. So early adopters in new communications technologies are almost always driven by the desire to see sex. 
Now, you've spoken with a lot of experts. You've done a lot of research in the area of uh, healthy pornography for young people. Does the content, and I guess you're talking about the community around those OnlyFans channels, fall under that? Is, that, is it a healthy thing for young people to be tapping into? So one of the things that has happened with digital disruption in pornography online is that not only is there a lot more pornography, but there's a huge variety of pornography now in a way that wasn't the case before. The the barriers to entry have been loaned, lowered so dramatically that now basically anybody who has an iPhone and access to um, uh, to the internet can create and distribute pornography. And that's resulted in a blossoming of all kinds of different, there's feminist pornography, ethical pornography, queer pornography, diversity pornography, all kinds of things that weren't there before. And so we, we ran a research project with some, some health researchers, uh, adolescent health experts, sex education researchers, uh, to look at, um, for, for young adults, 18 to 25 year olds, um, what out of this whole range of pornography now, what is actually healthy for supporting sexual development and what might have negative effects. And the kinds of things that they came up with was that um, for for young adults, 18 to 25-year-olds, if they're going to be looking at pornography, it should be pornography. It's all about variety. It's not just the same stuff. It's not just men putting their penis into women's vaginas. That's very important. One of the key things they said was it should have a variety of sex acts because... um, I don't know if all of your listeners know this, but the research shows that most women will not have an orgasm just from a man putting his penis in her vagina. That is not a good way to support women's orgasms because women's orgasms are clitoral. And for most women, a penis in a vagina does not stimulate the clitoris in the correct way. So you want to have a variety of different sexual acts, not just penis and vagina, a variety of body types, abilities, genders, races, ethnicities. You want consent to be apparent on screen. Uh, you want focus on pleasure for all the participants, not just the man having an orgasm, but focus on the kinds of things that give women orgasms as well. So these are the kind of things that you're looking for. And the great thing about OnlyFans is that it supports this kind of diversity. You don't need to have a studio and a team of three camera people and lights and everything in order to um, attract an audience. Uh, What you have is people who are performing their authenticity who can access it easily. So you do have a vast uh, diversity, a range of the kinds of sexual acts and identities and bodies that are available online. So in that way, having access to something like OnlyFans or Just for Fans is very much heading in the right direction for supporting young adults with healthy sexual development. I suspect there'll be a lot of men who are stunned by that news. I was going to say some good news for the young gents out there. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> Learning something. Pr- probably for young women as well. <laughs> uh, let's let's bring it back to um, society's current perception. So we did talk about how we go back to ancient Rome. It was a very much open society that was effectively closed down around the Victorian times and has gradually been uh, opening back up again. Nonetheless, there's still a certain stigma associated with pornography in many in many acceptable social circles, quote unquote. Um, people may have be very comfortable with their own sexuality and creating content themselves. What are the risks uh, for joining a platform like OnlyFans given the society we still live in? Mm. Absolutely. That's such an important point. Um, we call it whorephobia, um, the fear and hatred of sex workers, whorephobia, and it is still 
massive. There are so many stories of people who are engaged in consensual sex work appearing on something like OnlyFans and then when their boss finds out about it, they get sacked or if their family find out about it, they get disowned. Um, certainly, that is a problem. Things fortunately are getting better. Um, there's a wonderful book by a, a sex worker researcher activist in the States called Jiz Lee called Coming Out as a Porn Star. And she talks about this idea that just as queer people have started to come out so that it's no longer shameful or embarrassing to be seen as, as a gay man. My name is Alan McKee and I am a big old queer and that is absolutely fine and that doesn't get in the way of my job at all. In the same way that we can do that now, um, sex workers are now starting to be supported as they come out and acknowledge that they are sex workers. And so we have wonderful things like in in my space, for example, um, in, in the university system, we have more and more sex worker researchers who are quite open about the fact that they are or have been sex workers as well as being professors in a university. And that's uh, that kind of thing makes it... Uh, challenges that kind of horror phobia. I don't know how true it is in journalism. I don't know how many of your colleagues are open about having ever been in sex work, but one day they will be able to, and that will make things a lot different. It probably also helps for relationships as well. I imagine if you um, have a very um, comfortable, healthy respect for yourself, it could help with the way you, you value yourself in the eyes of other people, making sure that you get the right treatment from people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as a general rule, living in shame is is never never good for you. And listen, I grew up in 1970s Scotland as a gay man, so I know that that's the truth. A lot of people, I guess, from COVID maybe started it as a side hustle. For some people, it's starting to become a full-time job. Do you see places like OnlyFans and possibly other, you know, adult content sites as a career? Like, is there a future in it for many people? Or is it just something that's sort of short-term? That's a very interesting question. I mean, there is um, there is a fair bit of research about why people go into sex work. And um, it has all of the downsides of what we call the gig economy. It's precarious labour. It's not a nine to five job that has sick leave and superannuation and all of the, the great things that, that come with having a, an ongoing job. But um, for many of the people who do it, um, that's actually an advantage. So you have people who are doing it for the very straightforward reason that it is a good way to make money. Um, it, it, you, you can earn a lot more um, doing this than you can uh, stacking shelves in coals, for example. Um, but then there's also a lot of people who say that um, working on something like OnlyFans, they, they say that w working in a cafe or, or working in an office was a horrible job. They said they had a manager who was a dickhead um, who would force them to come in to cover for people who did not respect them, who did not treat them well, that the job was soul-destroying and mind-numbing, and now they're doing something that um, either they enjoy, or even if they don't enjoy, is a lot better than having some idiot manager hovering over your shoulder telling you what to do. So there's people who want to do it for that reason. But one of the very interesting pieces of research that I read recently 
was um, single mothers were saying that it was the best job they could possibly do because they could spend the day with their kids and then put the kids to bed, spend a couple of hours doing this and make more money than they would in a week working in, in some other terrible job. So there's all kinds of reasons that people do it. There's also the uh, the fact that not everybody makes a huge amount of money from it. It's a creative industry and creative industries are always the same. There'll always be a few actors or a few musicians who earn incredible amounts of money, but then the 99% are just scraping along, earning a little bit here and there. So people will get into it for a variety of reasons. Some of them will do it short term uh, just because they want to pay for their uh, college tuition or because they want to um, pay off a, a, a an insurance debt or something like that. Other people will continue to do it either because they're making good money or just because they're enjoying it. Um, Alan, let me ask you one more question. Uh, when we've been warned many times, not when it comes to just pornography online, but any photograph. Once you put something up there, any post, uh, whether it's about work, whether it's about you know, your pet dog, uh, it's not owned by you anymore. It's owned by the platform generally. What legal recourse do people have or, or how should people think about the legal risk of what they're putting out there on the internet if they change their mind at some point down the track? Mm, absolutely. It's it's very important. I mean, I would say that um, once you have put a photograph on the internet, there are legal options you can have to try to get it taken down, but you've they're pointless. They're pointless. Once the once the photograph is out there, somebody has screen grabbed it. Somebody has saved it. It is it is out there forever, and you're always going to have to live with that. And that comes back to the question of of horophobia. It's um, are you are you um, in a career or hoping for a career where that is going to be a problem. I mean, if you're hoping to one day be the Prime Minister of Australia, then at this point, probably it's best not to have naked photographs of yourself out there masturbating yourself. Um, now, maybe in a couple of hundred years time, that will no longer be the case. But certainly now, if you are um, wanting to have a career that involves you um, in some kind of um, uh, um, well, polite middle class profession, then that may be an issue. Although, as I say, the world is changing in encouraging ways. And we do now have professors in, in the academy who, who are quite open about the fact that um, not only have they been sex workers, but there are pictures of them out there um, having having sex acts. And that is not a problem. Um, as I say, there that's it's starting to change. I'm not sure whether that would certainly not for politicians and maybe not for journalists either. Certainly a lot of insight there, a lot to go through and some good advice there for some young people, I think. Uh, Alan McKee from UTS, thank you so much. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for the chance to talk about something that I care so much about. Thank you, Alan. A big thanks once again to Alan and Lucy for being part of the show today. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you get notified of new Let's Get Fiscal episodes. You can also stay up to date with more business and money news at 7news.com.au. I'm Damien Huffenden and this has been Let's Get Fiscal, a 7 News podcast's production. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.